It is episode 20 of the Gaming Memories Podcast, the big two zero, where I, Kid, call your host, a.k.a. Robocrip, the blessed beat maker and the man duly ordained by the holy triforce of gaming gods themselves. That is Miyamoto, the father, Kojima, the son, and Carmack, the Holy Ghost, petitioned by them by holy decree to create the one true gaming podcast. And they instructed me how to do so is actually pretty simple. All I got to do is interview creative and interesting people about their favorite gaming memories growing up. And on this episode of the podcast, I have Pop Culture Wizard. He's like Gandalf the Grey. Actually, he's the upgraded version. He's not Gandalf the Grey. He's when Gandalf becomes Gandalf the White. He's the upgraded wizard of pop culture, longtime video game author, multiple, multiple books, sells all over the world, has been writing about video games and pop culture for a long time. His name is Brett Weiss. I will put all the applicable links in the podcast description. You can look at BrettWeissWords.com, Brett Weiss on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, etc., etc. We talk extensively about his book, The SNES Omnibus, which is essentially a super badass, kind of like a coffee table encyclopedia that covers all 700 North American releases for the Super Nintendo. He has a book, The 100 Greatest uh, Video Game console games of all time, classic home video games from 72 to 84, classic home video games from 85 to 88, retro pop culture, A to Z. He's got a YouTube channel, and um, he's just all around been kind of in the business for a long time. He wrote for gamer magazines. He wrote for gaming encyclopedias. He has been in the game for a long time. And I was extremely uh, surprised and impressed at the same time because my knowledge of video game consoles, specifically pre-NES, pre like 80, I think the NES came out in like 82 or 83. Everything before the NES, I pretty much don't know anything. I know the Sega Master System. There is a Master System. I know there was a bunch of a different Ataris, but he goes in depth about the state of the industry, the great video game crash of 1983, and all the stuff about home consoles before the NES took over the market. And spoiler alert, there was a lot of consoles, and it seems like the industry was kind of in, in this crazy chaos with the, seemingly a console coming out every Every single month for years and years and years. So we talk a lot about old school console gaming pre-NES. We talk about his favorite games growing up, how he got into writing video games. We talk about his book, so on and so forth. It was a fantastic interview. Thank you very much, Brett, for your time. Um, he's a busy man with a lot of things going on. I'm super grateful he took some time out to talk to me. Gaming Memories Podcast, you know the drill. Share the good news of the Gaming Memories Gospel and ye shall be blessed, say the gaming gods themselves. That is a truly prophetic message. Uh, if you would like to, you can, I would say, uh, donate and give me some money, but I have no way to do that yet. I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty terrible prophet if I have no avenue in which you can give me money, because that's kind of the whole point of being a prophet, is to make profit. <laughs> anyway, share, like, subscribe, check out Brett online. I say these things in the name of Miyamoto, the Father, Kojima, the Son, and Carmack, the Holy Ghost. Enjoy the show, folks. Alrighty. Here we are with Brett. So, Brett, I was uh, just uh, Facebook, internet, 
what you call it, stalking you, trying to get a, <laughs> trying to uh, get a wrap wrap my mind around. So Patrick, for those listening, Patrick recommended Brett. Patrick was like four or five episodes ago. He's the author behind uh, the minds behind the game book series we talked about, and he recommended Brett, who, from what I can tell. You do a bunch of gaming stuff, but it seems like your main gaming gig is a YouTube channel. Well, that's what I've been promoting recently because that's kind of a newer thing. I've got a show called Tales from a Retro Gamer, but my main thing day in and day out is writing. I've been a professional writer since 1997, and I've written 10 uh, books. Most of them are about video games, And uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm a freelance writer who also does YouTube on the side. All right. What, uh, what books? Let me... Hit me with some of your books. Okay, so I wrote, uh, my best-selling book is probably The 100 Greatest Console Video Games 1977 through 1987. That takes you from the beginnings of the Atari 2600 up through the first uh, few years of the NES. And then I wrote the SNES Omnibus, Volumes 1 and 2, which cover every Super Nintendo uh, game uh, released in the U.S. And I wrote uh, the classic home video game series, and I wrote, I wrote an entire encyclopedia of the rock band Kiss, along with a few others. Wow. You wrote – so the, the I've seen the Omnibus book um, around somewhere, probably from Patrick or something. I've seen this before. Is This is – when you say it covers every Super Nintendo game, what do you mean by covered? Well, each game has a full page. It has a write-up by me. I wrote the individual entries, just like gameplay details, uh, some review critiques, and you know, um, little history on each game. Um, you know, uh, for every game. Well, plus um, each game has um, like quotes from old magazines, like review quotes that I got from old magazines and from certain respected websites. And plus, about half of the games have nostalgic stories attached to them. Uh, from people like uh, popular YouTubers like uh, John Lester, John Riggs, um, Kelsey Lewin, plus from other authors like Blake Harris, who wrote Console Wars, and John Jackson Miller, who's a best-selling author for Star Star Wars and Star Trek novels. So every North American release gets a full page with screenshots, box art. Uh, A lot of them have old ads from magazines. So these are full-color, hardcover coffee table books. And every game is treated, you know, you know, no matter how bad or good the game is, every game gets at least a page. So, <laughs> got a full reference library for the Super Nintendo in two volumes. How many uh, games total were released on the Super Nintendo? There's well over 700 North American releases. Wow! And that's the same for the Genesis as well. Both of those systems have over 700 releases. So it was the books for a long time. You know, it took a long time to write. You know, to track down information and play and, and do the research and on that for over 700 games took a long time and then uh, to farm out the uh the stories the nostalgic stories uh people wrote stories and submitted them submitted them to me uh, just growing up playing the games uh, yeah, some yeah. programmers were involved as well like working on the games and things like that so if you ever want to know anything about the super nintendo <laughs> anything and everything the snes omnibus is the way to go <laughs> Yeah, I found it. Uh, it's on. Um, it's on Amazon. It's a uh... yeah. They're actually really cheap on Amazon right now. They're huge hardcover books, and they're fifty dollars each. But Amazon has each one, each one of them for a little over thirty dollars each. So competing works. Um, one book like this costs fifty to sixty dollars uh, 
you know, from there's, you know, there's a couple of competing books like this. Um, but the SNES Omnibus are just, they're just 30 bucks each. So you get two massive books uh, for just a little over 30 bucks each. Yeah, this is a great coffee. Like, uh, it's much more visual than uh, Patrick's books. Like, I've, I've been reading through Patrick. I got his first book um, right after we did the podcast. But this is like a great coffee table. I love that it looks like on Amazon the inside cover has a picture from Tournament Fighters, which is a mm-hmm. – it's a Turtles game that a lot of people – when I when I have people on, I always ask them about their favorite gaming member or games that impacted them growing up. And when they bring up Turtles, almost everyone brings up the NES Turtles. It's like the most common one. But yeah. tournament, tournament Fighters is one that I put a lot of time in. And it, it doesn't – I like that. It's like – Yeah, it's a good fighting game, no yeah. doubt. And it looks like uh, – yeah, each book has – yeah, it's like a visual. It's a great – this is definitely if you want to look cool to your uh, gaming friends. This is, get this is a coffee table book. I well, they're see. very slick, and part yeah. of that is because they're published by Schiffer Publishing. That's a very well respected publishing house. These aren't self published books. Um, they're published by Schiffer Publishing, who has been doing uh, you know pop culture books, collectible books, all kinds of you know nice hardcover coffee table books for for decades. Nice. And so this is. Uh, you know, professionally published, professionally edited. Um, these are very heavy-duty, sturdy books um, that are really nicely designed. And I get a lot of uh, positive feedback on these books, and a lot of it is based on the nice design and the the, the stories uh, from, you know, industry people. They're called Insider Insights, and like I said, around half of the games have supplemental stories. Yeah. These are just nostalgic stories and, and programming stories and stuff. So they're neat yeah. books. I, it was a lot of fun. Uh, editing uh, the books, you know, like I said, I wrote the the basic gameplay for each, you know, the the write up, the sort of encyclopedia style entry for each book. Then it was a blast uh, getting all these stories, just all these different perspectives. Yeah, I had uh, some people in their twenties writing stories, all the way up to people in their sixties uh, writing stories of, of their times with the Super Nintendo. You know, whether it was renting games at uh, Blockbuster or buying them at Toys R Us or, you know, go, you know, couch co-op with their friends back in the day, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you get a lot of nostalgia with the, uh, you know, just the bare bones uh, gameplay description and historical data and that kind of stuff. Nice. What? Uh, so I have to ask, after going through all uh, this massive project, uh, cataloging every uh, Western release on the Super Nintendo, 700 titles. Which one stands out to you as, I guess, your favorite? Not the best game, but your favorite to uh, your favorite one out of all seven hundred to write in catalog. Well, I, I give an answer that nobody usually does. It's I, I love Mister Do on the Super Nintendo Mr. because that Do? was uh, Mister Do. It's kind of like Dig Dug. It's a maze game where you uh, carve your own tunnels. You dig underground. You know, carve your own tunnels and. Um, shoot monsters and uh drop apples on monsters and collect uh you you dig cherries up it's 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 just an old school maze game and it was an arcade classic in the early 80s and it is a lot like like dig dug and unlike uh the arcade version which is two player alternating if you have two players this one has a two player battle mode and so that's why i really like the super nintendo version mm-hmm. and um so to give a more mainstream answer i really love the star wars trilogy I really love those games, and I absolutely love Donkey Kong Country. If I had a second favorite game, it would probably be Donkey Kong Country. We, yeah, we talk about Donkey Kong Country quite a bit. That that one comes up a lot, and I always you probably know way more than me about this. Um, 
obviously you've done a bunch of research, but I remember uh, all of the hype behind the graphics step on that game and how they were rendering basically the, uh, the, the images on, at the time, supercomputers, compressing them down to sprites that the SNES could handle. And that was kind of like a new... When that came out, like all, I was probably nine or ten people couldn't believe, like, wait, what? A Super Nintendo can look like this? Like, oh, this absolutely. Is, was amazing. I remember... Uh... I can't remember if it was a story somebody submitted to or somebody just telling me. They remember seeing Donkey Kong Country in the store, and they just assumed there must be a new game system out. You know, the yes. next generation yeah. of game systems it was running on. They're like, wow, that's actually the Super Nintendo. And uh, what I really like about Donkey Kong Country is my wife and I at the time were playing a lot of Street Fighter Two Turbo on the Super Nintendo. Uh, and we were it was starting to get to the point where – it was not a good thing. You know, we're getting a little too competitive. <laughs> Emotions were running a little high. And um, so we got Donkey Kong Country, which is, you know, the two-player cooperative. Co-op. And so that, yeah. that that really helped our marriage a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good quote. Donkey Kong Country uh, improved my marriage. That's a great – Well, really as a matter of fact, in the SNES Omnibus, most of the stories that people contribute were by industry people. But my wife did write a story uh, about Donkey Kong Country, and it was all about that. It was all about how – that game, you know, was really a great two-player, you know, because I'm way more experienced than her with video games. And so, you know, I was just destroying her at Street Fighter 2, and that was not going over so well. And so when we started playing Donkey Kong Country, it worked out great because, you know, I could get through some of the really difficult areas, and then she could uh, play when she wanted to or go back and get extra lives in the earlier levels, you know, because that's a lot of fun. So it, it's a great two-player game. You mentioned the, the Star Wars trilogy. I just saw an article pop up recently that I believe it's the Empire Strikes Back that was on the Super Nintendo that never uh-huh. came out on the Genesis because um, the end of that game has a section where that mode seven on the Super Nintendo where it's like that's what Mario Kart uses where it looks flat and sure. can, yeah. And they the, the the theory I guess was always growing up the reason that game didn't get released on the Genesis is there was no way to support that mode seven section at the end of the game, but somebody leaked a fully functional Genesis version of that super Nintendo game online. And the only thing that's not playable is the, that last level with the mode. Well, I would imagine if they wanted to do it badly enough and produce it for the Genesis, they would just work around that and do something different for that level. Apparently they got all the way to the game being, game essentially being finished then it got scrapped and mm-hmm. never got released but someone leaked an old you know like dev version of the game and it's fully you can uh i downloaded it and threw it in an emulator and it totally plays and it it's plays, incredible all yeah. the roms and all the lost games that they're finding nowadays so many yeah yeah and people are preserving them and it's a lot more important to people than it used to be you know 10 12 15 years ago Yes. Uh, a lot of this stuff was just staying lost, and now they're excavating a lot of it. That's something that uh, – one of the things that stood out to me, uh, my interview with Patrick, was uh, I was trying to convince him to do a podcast because I just feel like his format would be great for a podcast, bringing mm-hmm. more people and talking to him. But he, he said something along the lines of like when – in 50 years, my book is going to matter because yeah. – because these things, there's not people are going to be clamoring for any sort of historical, what's the word like, 
a capsule. Historical records and yeah, accounts. Because so many things yeah. are getting lost and people are passing away and video games have, video games, I mean, I'm assuming you're a little bit older. It sounds like you're a little bit older than me because of the Atari stuff. So I think you got oh, yeah. to it before I did. But when I was Yeah, I was kid, 10 when the Atari 2600 came out in 1977. So you were 10 in 77. So you were born in 67. So you're about 20. Yeah, we're about two, two decades apart. And I, I'm sure... I'm sure the juxtaposition of how mainstream games are now versus when you were a kid is even greater than it is for me. But games have become like this just massive, bigger than music and movies combined. I think I've seen that. that yeah. Thing, yeah, for, that, do, that, for sure. That dollar amount. Thrown around. I mean, and now it's like all that, all, all the old stuff is like, yeah, how much is lost? already that we don't even know about versus people people like you and people like Patrick and there's there's a lot of cool people on YouTube doing like retrospectives and like mini documentaries on certain games or developers or series right and uh, I really like those too like I think that's yeah I think that's important yeah and they're fun to watch what got you uh, what made you decide to just go all in on the author route with games how did that come to well be? I grew up, my mom would take me to used bookstores when I was little, and we always had books in the house, and she was a reader. We always uh, got a newspaper every day. We subscribed to the paper. So I was always surrounded by things to read. I I wasn't a really good school student because I had a hard time sitting still and paying attention to everything, but I've always loved to read. And I also loved loved reading reference books. Like my parents had these old encyclopedia sets on their shelves. I loved the Guinness Book of World Records. I love... um, you know, just all, I love to read and I like, I like reference books a lot. And so, um, when I, uh, I've always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to write and I did some writing, but I didn't really get serious about it until the 1990s. And in 1997, I started writing for the all game guide, which was this online database whose objective was to describe catalog and review every single, uh, game for every console and computer. So I wrote for them for a few years, and then after 9-11, um, after the publishing industry and all the other you know businesses in the U.S. were hit pretty hard, a lot of businesses scaled back in the economic downturn, uh, they let go all their off-site writers. So I suddenly didn't have a writing job anymore, and so they were going to do a book series as well uh, to complement their website. And I thought, well, I thought after you know a little while, I thought, why don't I just start writing the books myself? So then I met McFarland Publishers at the 2006 San Diego Comic-Con, and I met an editor, gave her a business card. Three days later, I got home, and she emailed me and said, do you have any good book ideas? And that's so. <laughs> that's when I started writing the Classic Home Video Game series, which the first book is Classic Home Video Games 1972 through 1984. That covers the original Odyssey, Magnavox Odyssey up through... Uh, you know, the pre-NES era, the ColecoVision, the Atari 5200, Atari 2600, and Television Odyssey 2. So that was my first book, and it came out in 2007. That was the start of the classic home video game series. So just my love of writing, reading, and reference books, and my love of gaming. I've always been into video games ever since I discovered them uh, in 1975 when I saw Pong and Midway's Gunfight in the arcades. And then my cousin got Pong in 1975 for Christmas, Atari Pong. That's when the home version okay. came out that year, and he got it for Christmas. So ever since then, I've been heavily into video games and just sort of my two interests uh, combined, uh, reading, writing, or three interests, reading, writing, and video games. Is, uh, is Pong the f- – was it the – it's the first console game that came to homes, right? 
no. Well, it depends on how you how you uh, uh, describe it. Pong. Official official Pong for the home was Atari in 1975. However, the Magnavox Odyssey that came out for the home in 1972 had basically tennis games that were similar to Pong, and those were in production before the introdu- before uh, the introduction of Pong. So Pong light games were the first in homes. Magnavox Odyssey in 1972 played Pong like games, and Pong was introduced in the arcades in 1972. So Pong in the arcades and the Magnavox Odyssey both came out in 1972. So they sort of coincided, uh, but the Magnavox Odyssey was in production before, you know, Pong. Nolan Bushnell was at the uh, place where Ralph Bear was um, showing his uh, tennis game on the Brown Box, which would later become the Magnavox Odyssey. So um, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you are, you're an expert because on the the basically my gender, like everyone I know my age, uh, either mm-hmm. 35 or a little bit younger, like it's. Nintendo, the NES is like the is earliest. Usually, people bring. Sure. Up. I've never had yeah. any. I've never had anybody on that kind of that was into gaming because pre NES, like I've never even heard. I mean, I've I've seen pictures of the Magnavox Odyssey. I've heard of it before, but I wouldn't have remembered the mm-hmm. name had you brought it up. Right. Um, well, it was a it was a, a white console, Magnavox Odyssey, and then a little you know a few years later they had the Odyssey Two, which Odyssey was a 2, sort of a I'm sequel to it with a keyboard. Yeah, yeah, and that was yeah. more well known. The original Odyssey, you know, just sold a few hundred thousand uh, units. And when it came out in '72, and even after that, I did, I hadn't heard of it till later. I never, I don't remember seeing any commercials about it. And, and I know there was a commercial, and it was um, it was fairly obscure. Even uh, you know, even though it was the only console on the market in '72, it was fairly obscure then because I know people my age that no, that never saw it back in the day. I've you know, heard, the first thing video game yeah. I ever remember seeing was. Uh, the Pong console from Atari in 75. And then in 1976, my two best friends each had a Fairchild Channel F. And so... Wait, 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 wait. What's that? I've never heard of that. It's called a Fairchild Channel F, and it was originally called the Fairchild Video Entertainment System. I believe that was the name of it. And it came out in 1976, and it was actually the first truly, you know, programmable uh, cartridge-based console predating the Atari 2600 by approximately a year. It came out in 76. It was the fair... And it's... Commonly known as the Fairchild Channel F. This looks, this looks awesome. It looks like it belongs in Blade Runner. I like the style. Yeah, yeah, and it looks like eight track tapes. Yeah, yeah, this is cool. I've never heard yeah. of this. I've definitely all the Ataris. I've definitely heard about, and I kind of, yeah. kind of as I was getting into gaming later, went back. But I've never heard of the Fairchild Channel F. So technically, yeah. well, I guess you could say the in seventy two the Magnavox would be the first home console but it sounds like it wasn't it, was it had cartridges niche. that plugged into it but the full the first fully programmable cartridge-based console was 76 the fairchild channel f fairchild, fairchild channel know. f yeah Dang, this is uh i like i like the, the game art so it had a. they look like what's interesting they, they look like smaller cartridges than the nes cartridges they look kind of skinnier yeah, a little smaller, a little like they're not as wide. So she had some friends that had the Fairchild, and then it sounds like you ended up getting one of the Ataris. Well, what happened was, uh, growing up, we we had good birthdays and Christmases, but beyond that, you know, we got a dollar a week for allowance, and if you didn't save up for it, you didn't get it. Yeah, yeah. And Christmas was basically a hundred dollars, but back then, 
Atari 2600s were $250. And then in televisions that came along, you know, a couple of years after that were uh, $300. So we didn't have an Atari growing up, but um, I went to my friend's house, my cousin's house, everybody I knew that had an Atari 2600. And then later in Odyssey 2 and in, and in television, I would go to their houses all the time. So I was playing a lot of video games growing up, but it was just always at somebody's house. I didn't have my own console in, until I was 15 in 1982 when I got a ColecoVision. I remember seeing the ColecoVision commercials in, in the summer of 82 and seeing the Donkey Kong uh, screenshots you know, uh, on TV and just how they looked to me exactly like the arcade. And that was, I was blown away by that. And so I kicked in 100 bucks, and my parents, a.k.a. Santa Claus, Sorry, kids. Um, <laughs> um, kicked in a hundred bucks, so I got a ColecoVision in Christmas of '82, and, and it came with Donkey Kong, and I got Mousetrap, and I stayed up all night uh, long. Christmas of '82, greatest Christmas of all time, playing ColecoVision, and so yeah. And then after that, a kid at school sold me his Atari 2600 for ten dollars. That came with ten games, which was really great. And not, that was 1983 when Atari 2600, you know. You would see him in garage sales at this time, but getting one for 10 bucks with 10 cartridges was a fantastic deal. He just didn't want it anymore because it wasn't the coolest system anymore. As that's, soon as the ColecoVision that's what and I was the 5200. It, huh? like, it seems like a lot of consoles came out in a short amount of time because you keep rattling off all these ColecoVision yeah. and television, and this is all in between, sounds like 70, you know, 75 and 82. How many consoles... We're coming out and how it sounds it sounds like it was chaos well there was the bally astrocade the arcadia 2001 <laughs> the vectrex the adventure vision the rca studio 2 and um uh let's see probably a couple others i'm not thinking about right now but anyway yeah there were a lot of systems it was it was wow. a bloodbath and um and then of course there was the great video game crash of 1983 just because of the over overproduction of lousy atari 2600 games um sort of was the main factor behind the market crash but anyway yeah there were a lot of game systems uh, being produced then and it was a it was a really fun time to be a gamer you know we st it was the perfect time because you know you had a lot of video games to play and they weren't so immersive that they would keep you you know inside all day you know you'd uh, you know there were pick up and play titles and there were some that would take longer than others but you know you had a nice balance of playing outside and doing other things riding your bike or whatever and then when you were tired of that you'd come in and play video games so it was a great time to grow up this Coleco, I'm looking at this ColecoVision. That's one of the ones I I'd heard that term before, but I wasn't familiar with it. It looks like the console. It also looks like a tape deck, and it looks like it has detachable controllers that nest in, like when you're not using. Yeah, they're they kind nest of yeah, you into can, the console. That's actually kind of put it, they kind of fit inside the, yeah. the gaming console to make it to make it flatter. Yeah, that's actually a lot really of people cool. don't like those knob joysticks, but I, I grew up playing it. And I, I like them. They don't bother me any. So greatest Christmas ever! It sounds like you know, there's a lot, a lot of people I know in my generation that would say getting a Super Nintendo or Genesis or a 64 on Christmas is their greatest Christmas ever. That's oh, absolutely, idea. yeah. That's the same idea for you. You're just more OG. It was the it was the yeah. ColecoVision. <laughs> yeah, just 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 a generation before that. And one thing about these SNES Omnibus, the SNES Omnibus books, a lot of the stories in the books are about Christmas. You know, just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, being surprised sense. by a present or whatever. So that, that's a lot of it. Yeah, I had a, I had a similar uh, – my first console was – well, we had a, an, an NES, but it was my older brother's, and I was really little, like three or something, mm -hmm. and it was very little. Right. I couldn't quite wrap my head around it other than playing Mario. 
but I yeah. did uh, <laughs> I did get a, a Genesis similar thing. I think I saved up like sixty dollars from chores over the course of a year, like not that much money. And my parents mm-hmm. floated the rest. But I uh, nice. I got the I got Sonic Two the game before I had enough money to get the, the actual console. So I would uh-huh. just sit and look at the game cartridge and the booklet and read the booklet over and over and over and over. That's again. great. I've talked, I talked to another guy that had a, had the game and the manual and all that before he got the console, and he would just daydream yes. looking at that manual for you know yes. hours and hours. Hours. And, and so by the time I ended up getting the console, it was like all this anticipation, and I just played Sonic 2. I mean, that was my first game. and, that, and that, Sonic 2 is excellent. Excellent, excellent game. And... Um, that sounds pretty similar. Now, the ColecoVision, I don't know any games on this. When you first got it, and it was the greatest Christmas ever, what games were you playing? What What are notable games on this system? Well, the ColecoVision um, had excellent arcade ports. It had Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., Zaxxon, which is a fantastic outer space shooter, which is brilliant graphics for the time. It had Mousetrap and Ladybug, which were really great um, uh, maze games, plus Mr. Do. Uh, not as good as the Super Nintendo one, but for the time, it was a great arcade port as well. That Time Pilot, Cosmic Avenger, those are shooters. It, it, and it had some original games as well. A game called Tarzan, Tarzan, which was just a really early beat-em-up. And it had two uh, cartoon games that you would think would be just little kid games, but they were really early side-scrolling platformers that were like Pitfall. They were uh, Smurf, Rescue, and Gargamel's Castle, and Cabbage Patch. Uh Cabbage, I can't remember what the title of it is the top of my head. Anyway, it's a pa- Cabbage Patch Kids. I think it's Adventures in the Park. Cabbage Patch Kids game based on the dolls that was a lot like, surprisingly, a lot like Pit, Pitfall for the Atari 2600. So there was just a ton of great games on the ColecoVision, and it was mostly known for having excellent arcade ports. And it ported a lot of the obscure games like Space Fury and um, uh, Frontline and Pepper 2, and some of these games a lot of people hadn't heard of had really excellent ports of those. The, it's a very uh, arcade-like system. Well, so, what was the state of the industry? Because obviously, you know, people who are uh, familiar with the modern industry, where you have consoles and exclusives and publishers and mm-hmm. IPs, it sounds like it was more of a free-for-all, like where you could have the same game on all these random systems, and they would a system would launch and they would port arcades. Was it? How was it set up? Like, did did you have something like? Um, these arcade ports, were they on every Atari? Were they on ColecoVision? Were they on the, the whatever? Well, that's a good ca- question. So for the ColecoVision, Coleco was producing excellent arcade ports for the ColecoVision. Well, some of the more popular titles like Donkey Kong and Venture and a few others, um, that's Venture, not Adventure, <laughs> you know, uh, and a few others, Papa, or not Papa was Parker Brothers. Anyway, so some of these big uh, games, Donkey uh, Coleco was uh, porting over to the, their ColecoVision, they made some for the Atari 2600 and, and television as, as well, select titles. And then the big third-party uh, companies from the day, like Activision, Parker Brothers, and Magic, which some people call iMagic, those companies, those big third-party, third-party companies, they were making games for the 2600, the 5200, the Intellivision, the ColecoVision, and even like a Magic made a couple of games for the Odyssey too. So yeah, there were there were companies making you know games for several you know the same title for several different systems. Like Demon Attack was for Odyssey two, Atari 2600, Atari um, or for Intellivision, you know, different versions and um, of the same game. And so yeah, there was a lot of cl- cross-platform games, but there were definitely exclusives too. So. 
it, it was there was a lot of uh, a lot of competition and you know as soon as, as soon as the it, and unlike today so today with with retro gaming being so popular if you get a new console what a lot of people will do will maybe have two or three uh, or more systems hooked up to the same TV or they'll have a big game room with a bunch of systems or they might put you know a couple of systems downstairs one somewhere else in the house maybe one in a kid's bedroom back then most people when they upgraded to the new console let's say they got the ColecoVision and they would put their Atari 2600 up in the attic, up in the closet, or in the garage sale, because that was, con- for a lot of people, the vast majority of, of people that uh, bought game systems, as soon as the newer, shinier console Object came out, they yeah, would yeah. relegate the older stuff to yeah. the, you know, in a lot of cases, just throw them away. Well, it sounds like, so the, I'm, look, I'm looking this up, the Odyssey 2 came out in 78, and this time frame we're talking about is basically like seven. Like late seventies to to mid eighties, and it almost sounds like from the the amount of uh, consoles you've listed, it sounds like you could say there was a basically a new console coming out every year, which would which <laughs> there were there were quite a few during that time, which and would then, be crazy uh, now. I mean, I can't imagine right now like every year, like you know, for a long time it's been two to three companies since I've been a kid. Yeah, in, in the marketplace at any given time. But as you're describing this, I'm just trying to wrap my head around like, how did? Well, there were some smaller ones like the Adventure Vision, the Vectrex, the RCA Studio Two that barely made a dent. They just you know lasted, they didn't last all that long, and they didn't sell all that well. So, but the main ones were the Atari 2600, the Intellivision, and the ColecoVision. Those are the heavy, heavy, heavy okay. hitters. And then the Atari 5200 was pretty big as well, and the Odyssey too. It, it sold quite a few. But the um, so yeah, there there were still a lot of a lot of comp, a lot of uh, consoles vying for competition for for the marketplace for sure. And describe to me from your perspective. So you're already you're already knee deep into games. You love games. You're uh, um, an early adopter. You're, w- what was it like watching the NES become like this? From what I understand, like the first. Um, I don't know, like it took the country by storm. It sounds, I mean, it seems like. And yeah, everybody, everybody well, knows the, it. The, the Atari 2600 was the first console that really went mainstream, and that happened in 1980 when Space Invaders would, was ported for it. However, the NES even, even you know, was way more mainstream even than the Atari 2600. And it was test marketed in New York in 1985, and then in 1986 it was released nationwide. And it was popular in the beginning, but it really blew up in 87, 88, and 89 when Legend of Zelda and yeah. um, Metroid and uh, then in Super, Super Mario Brothers 3, you know, and all these big titles came out. Of course, Super Mario Brothers came out in 85, and it blew up in 86 when, you know, the console went nationwide. And I got my Super I mean, I got my NES for Christmas of 87. I didn't get one right away because I was still playing Atari ColecoVision and television and all that stuff. And I, I didn't figure I needed a NES right away. But I heard good, great things about it. Well, my brother actually got me one. I was very surprised. He got me a parent-level gift from my, my older brother. You know, I was 20 in 87, and my brother was like 24, 25. And for some reason, he bought me an NES uh, for Christmas in 87. And I was really excited. And I just could not believe how great uh, Super Mario Brothers was. Because that's the and that's the first time I'd played it is when I actually got the NES, um, 
And I was just amazed by how open-ended it was and how many secrets and surprises it had, how cartoon-like the graphics were <laughs> uh, compared to everything that came before it. And then the controller was amazing to me as well because every controller that came out before the NES uh, had a problem. Like the Atari 2600 joysticks were kind of stiff. The control disc on the Intellivision was kind of weird and not a great uh, controller for like tight cornering and stuff. And it was just kind of weird. You know, most people were used to joysticks from the arcades, and then the Intellivision is this disc. That was kind of strange. And then the Atari 5200 had non-centering joysticks, were really, which were, were not good. And then, But the NES, the control pad just fit so well in your hands, and you had such good control over it. And the NES had a lot of mainstream press coverage. I remember hearing, you know, talk radio. I would listen to talk radio sometimes and just hear them talk about the NES. There was... Uh, the system was in a lot of newspapers and stuff, and it got a lot more mainstream press than any system before it. It's interesting. I've never heard anybody talk about one of the reasons the NES was caught so well was that the, it had a superior controller design. I'd never thought yeah, about I think that. Yeah, I think that's an underrated aspect of the system because it just fit so well in your hands, and it was less. it didn't cramp your hands like some of the earlier uh, console uh, joysticks, and it just... The D-pad was just such a brilliant. Now that was the D-pad was actually devised for the Game and Watch. That concept of the D-pad was actually devised for the handheld Game and Watch uh, systems that came out in the early '80s. And um, but that was carried over to the NES, and that was just such an excellent, just simple, uh, intuitive controller that you had such good control over the characters and the ships and whatever. And it, yeah, I just I loved. Aware. I loved the NES immediately. I wasn't aware that the D-pad – so I, I, as you've been talking about these consoles, I've been looking up uh, pictures of them. And, and all of them generally have like a like a traditional arcade joystick like a box with like a with a button or two on it. And I can see, okay, I, them do, hold, yeah. if I'm holding this small little box and my whole wrist is wrapped around or a hand's wrapped around mm-hmm. this It can joystick, cramp your hand after a while. cramp your hand up, yeah. And then I didn't realize that the D-pad was like a, a revolutionary – Thing because for me that was yeah. the first thing I ever experienced. But now, now that I'm looking at all these pictures, I'm like that's right. There's no D pads on any of these controllers, right? And they were that's, all different. They were, every yeah. system had seemed to have its own different design. But a lot of them were kind of like the Odyssey Two and the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Twenty Six Hundred had the boxy uh, controller with the joystick and the button. And uh, but yeah, there was flaws with every jo- every controller. There were flaws until the NES came around. That's interesting. So you're already 20 years old. Um, are you already uh, – start? Well, you mentioned you got a job writing for All Game Guide, right? What, how old were you when that started? Yeah, that was that was much later. That was 97, so I was uh, 30. Okay, so you still have a decade of gaming, but you're not – you haven't decided to, to build your career around writing for games. Right. So in my 20s, I, uh, me and my brother-in-law, we went uh, into business together and opened a couple of comic book stores in the Fort Worth, Texas area. We sold comic books, role-playing games, science fiction stuff, baseball cards, and all kind of that. So I was, I was into retail. And uh, prior to that, I, had, I was a manager for Lone Star Comics, which is a comic book chain in North Texas. And so I was, uh, you know, I was always into geeky stuff. Um, so, but, but yeah, I was, I've always been into comics and stuff. So I was into comic book retail pretty heavily in the nineties. And then I got a job at Walden books. Um, and it was in the nineties was when I really started writing. I started writing short stories uh, for just some small press magazines and online magazines and stuff. 
And then, uh, then I started writing for the All Game Guide in 97, 98, and yeah, when I was 30, 31 years old. Okay, so you go, so at 20 years old, you uh, get an NES. What, uh, what game stand out to you during the NES era that maybe people, I mean, obviously there's Zeldas and the Marios, which you've talked about. Is there anything that stands sure. out to you? But, uh, that would be I like the game called Trojan, which people kind of giggle about now, since that's a, a con name of a condom as well. <laughs> but it was a uh, Trojan, it, yeah, Trojan. It's it's kind of a side-scrolling platformer slash beat 'em up kind of game. Oh, this when is you, cool. you also got had weapons and stuff. It was a cool game, Trojan. It, it was a lot of fun. I liked Akari Warriors, which is a kind of a vertical, uh, you know, run and gun game. That one was a lot of fun until you got stuck in it. Me and my brother-in-law played that game. Two players simultaneous for a couple, you know, like three hours one day working our way through it. And then I got stuck behind a barrier and you couldn't kill yourself. So we had to start over. <laughs> and uh, so, but anyway, that was, that was fun. And of course I loved Castlevania. That was one of my favorites. Yes, and, that's um, a good one. Amazing. Yeah. And I it's like a- some of the arcade ports. I like some of the classic arcade ports for the NES, like Bump and Jump, which is a, a vertical racer, top-down vertical racer where you can jump and crush other cars, but also go really fast while you're racing. There was a great port of Popeye, the old-school uh, non-scrolling platformer, and, of course, Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr., and the original Mario Brothers, not Super Mario Brothers, but just yes. regular Mario Brothers. Love that game. So I, I've, I've talked to uh, – it comes up quite a bit that people's taste sort of for pop culture – it sounds like you were always into geeky stuff – he did comic books, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and card games, and video games, and all that. Most people's taste kind of gets set in their, I don't know, like the magic age of 11 to maybe 18. Do mm-hmm. you st- now, in modern, uh, obviously it sounds like you still follow gaming, you're doing YouTube channel and stuff. Do you still yeah. prefer to play retro games that are, that are you know, paying homage to pre-NES days because that's that's what have been that would have been the magical time for you growing up playing the ColecoVision and then the Ataris and the Intel all that stuff or do you is that is that still what you like or do you like modern games I really like both but I if I picked one it would definitely be the retro games I yeah. like the stuff that I like the games that are I, I typically prefer linear games over the over the open world non-linear games. Although there's some of those that I've liked as well and played a lot. I mean, I love God of War, and I've played some Grand Theft Auto three and five, and um, I like um, uh, you know I love the newer Mario games. You know, I love all that stuff. But but ultimately, if I picked one, it would be the I, I love just the the old pick up and play. You know, games where you're, you know, the second you start up the game, you're running for your life or you're, you know, shooting your way out yeah. of something, you know, that are really intense Twitch games. I prefer those overall, but but I love all eras. Interesting. Do you, so from the, from the NES, what was the, was the that would probably, you would have had that from 20 to 25, 26-ish, and then Sega or Master System or Super Nintendo would have been coming along. What did you get next? So the Sega Master System, I didn't, I, I didn't get one of those back in the day. Um, I got it later. But the next console I owned, so in 1989, I was working at Lone Star Comics, and um, there was all this buzz over the Sega Genesis. You know, it came out in 89. And I remember the owner's son uh, the, um, got a Sega Genesis, and he was talking about how awesome Altered Beast is, and that he transformed <laughs> into this creature and all this stuff, and how Rise great the graphics from were. from the grave. Yes, and um, I remember him talking about that, 
And then, uh, but I didn't get one yet because again, you know, I had the old systems, including my NES. And when in '91, when Sonic the Hedgehog came out, I just you had okay, to I, yeah, I'm not waiting anymore. And I got I love Sonic the Hedgehog. I love Sonic Hedgehog Two even more than that. And I got that was when the, the great times of Funko Land and then GameStop when you could buy. Uh, this was fun, Colin, at the time. I, was, I remember buying boxed Genesis games that were just awesome, you know, for two, three, four, and five dollars each. Great shooters and platformers and stuff. And so I got a really nice collection of, of Genesis games. And then I got a Super Nintendo. I think I got my Super Nintendo after the first price drop, either 92 or 93, when it was $150, probably 92. Uh, it went down to $150. Yeah, it was 92, I believe. What year did dollars. Genesis came out eighty nine. What year did the Super Nintendo? Was it a year later? Ninety one. Ninety one. So two years later. Okay. Yeah, it was a full two years, or not? A, maybe not a full two years, but it was Genesis eighty nine, Super Nintendo ninety one. Okay, okay. And then you waited till the price dropped, even a couple years after that. Yeah, I, I waited for the first. Uh, I'm not typically a super early adopter because I, I'm uh, price conscious, and so for like the Super Nintendo, I waited for the first price, price drop. Obviously, I waited on the Genesis. Probably the only system I recall buying almost right away was the Nintendo Wii because we went over to my brother-in-law and my sister's house and their kids were over and stuff and we were playing tennis and bowling and I just absolutely loved those and thought those that was just so great. And so I drove around to GameStops till I found, you know, right at the time, Wiis were super hard to find because they were just selling like crazy and everybody, yeah. everybody and their grandma literally was buying them. And um, so... Uh, I drove around to probably five or six GameStops until I found a Wii and, and bought one of those just to probably just a few weeks right after it came out. But other than that, I usually wait for a price drop uh, yeah. or a special edition. I also like special edition consoles. So sometimes I'll wait for that. Like for the original, the OG Xbox, I bought the Halo Xbox when it came out. And then for the Xbox 360, I waited until they had the, you know, the C3PO uh, R2D2 one. You know, it's it's like R two D two, and it has a little C three PO controller. Yeah, I remember. That's that. my three sixty. I remember though the the Wii days. I actually worked at GameStop for for uh, two Christmases, like a year, uh-huh. just just barely like over a year. I started during the Christmas season, and then ended during the next Christmas season, and both were pretty crazy at the Wii. And I, uh, we oh, def- I'm sure we definitely um, you probably. Knock on wood. I mean, no one's going to care. We definitely moved some people around on the waiting list and took bribes, and it was it was like <laughs> it was uh, everyone. It was it was crazy. The we that yeah. the we that whole that whole the we just it blew up. I mean, it, like I don't remember. I think before that, the best selling, the fastest selling console, I believe, before that was the Dreamcast, and the Wii came and just uh, stomped all over those records. Well, the PlayStation Two. Is the best selling console of all time? Of, of all time, yes. But I think, yeah. I think the first year of launch, the Dreamcast was number one until the Wii. I could be wrong. I know the as PS2, far as just how quick it sold over the first year. Yeah, yeah I don't I, have the numbers in front of me. I know the Wii was a big, a hot seller, and um, it was just, it worked. So I mean, those motion controls when I first saw them and heard about them, I thought, eh, that's kind of goofy. But man, when you just pick them up and play they're really responsive and they work so well Surprising, in bowling and yeah. tennis the wii That's sports a, is probably one of the greatest uh you know not only killer apps but pack-in titles of all time definitely one of uh, yeah one of the best pack-in or launch titles i had a similar experience i thought i saw i saw some pictures or i mean i was exposed to some media 
thought it was cheesy and hokey, played mm-hmm. Wii Sports, played tennis, was like, wow, this feels really intuitive. Like it actually. Yep. All you gotta do is it play works. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a. It sounds. What console have you not bought? Because it sounds like you've been, you've been all in since the beginning, and you've had every console. Well, I didn't buy a PlayStation Three. I got one fairly recently at a garage sale because some lady just gave it to me. But I didn't buy a PlayStation Three because I was still uh, throwing down on the PS Two a lot, and I'd heard some. I just didn't feel the need to get a PS Three. And um, you know, there are a few here and there that I haven't picked up. Um, I got my Saturn much later at a pawn shop for twenty five dollars. Um, so, so let's do see. I don't and a, I don't have currently. I have a my son has a PlayStation Four and I have a Switch, but I don't have like an Xbox uh, One X or, or and, okay. you know that some of the later newer Xboxes. Do you have you kept all of it? So you have a, a really robust collection somewhere at home. Yeah, I've got a big uh, game room upstairs, and I've got like tables situated around the game room with all the old consoles set up. I probably have forty something consoles set up available, oh, you know, dang. ready to play. How, well, I do uh, a lot of research. Yeah, I do a lot that? of research for the books I write. So, um, yeah. As a matter of fact, true. if you go, yeah, if you go to my YouTube channel, if you just look up my name, Brett Weiss, B R E T T W E I S S, there's a a video on there with my Sega collection and Room of Doom. And a, a guy from the Sega channel came over to my house one time and filmed uh, some of my office and game room and stuff. So you can see some of that there. And I plan at some point to do a full-on you know, game room uh, walkthrough uh, on my YouTube channel. But that, that'll be at some point. Oh, there it is. Sega Collection in Room of Doom. You mentioned oh, – I see another video, the great video game crash of 83. It looks like you have a video for it. Um, yeah, that's a recent video I did. What is yeah? Let's run run the listeners through that because I think most of us, most of my listeners, um, come from a music background. So that's where my uh, I got my start did music, and a lot of those guys, uh-huh. play, a lot of those guys that produce music are also into gaming. Most of my guests have been musicians of varying degrees of success. Some really successful, some mid tier. Uh-huh. I say that most of us probably are maybe thirty five to thirty six. If I look at the stats on my podcast yeah. at the oldest. So this, I've never even heard of the term, the great video game crash of 83. Walk, let's walk us through that and what, what happened. Okay. It's pretty long and involved, but I'll give you a quick summary. In 1982, the video game market was booming. And specifically we're talking about the console market in North America. And in 1983, there was just so much stuff on the market. There was a lot of consoles and uh, more specifically, more importantly, there was tons of what they call shovelware coming out, just hastily produced, lousy games for the Atari 2600 for all, from all different kinds of companies, just all these companies that had no business uh, making video games, these third-party companies. And they just flooded the market with games. And so people would buy these 20 and 30 and $35 games or whatever be and bring them yeah. home, and they would just be broken and almost unplayable with really super crude graphics, even for the Atari and it just flooded the market, and consumers were having a hard time, you know, uh, it was just all, you know, it was a hard time, you know, deciding what to buy, and, and there was a lot of lousy games on the market, and yeah, there's it just no, there's overwhelmed. There's no internet at that time. You can't just go online and find out which games are bad and which games are good. 
So, yeah, there was no quick, you know, there, there was magazine reviews, but th- those, you know, those were, uh, weren't as helpful as, you know, weren't as quick. And a lot of, you know, a lot of parents weren't buying video game magazines and stuff. Yeah. It's a lot quicker just to hop online and see what there was. And social media tears apart, you know, broken games nowadays, whereas back then you didn't have that. Yeah. And so there was all these awful games coming out and it just flooded the market. Retailers were having a hard time uh, find, making space for all these games and it just overwhelmed the market. And suddenly, um, in 83, when I was had, that's when I had a car, I was 16 and that's when I first had a car and a job and I was driving around all these stores and I was finding these games at first I saw them marked to 10 to $15 each, which was a real big markdown from, you know, 30 to 45 or to 50, like they were. And, um, then, you know, after that seven ninety nine, four ninety nine, ninety nine 99, 99 cents, the cheapest I ever saw them was 99 cents, but I know people that uh, would see them for a quarter a piece. Brand new factory sealed games for, you know, ClickOvision and Television, Odyssey 2, Atari 2600, all the way down to a quarter per game. And so there was just a major market crash, and it really didn't recover until the mid-'80s with the introduction of the Nintendo NES. And this is specifically the North American console market. What was going on? So another question I have is when I grew up, Japan was mecca for video games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was what was going on in Japan with these consoles before the NES? Well, the Famicom came out in '83, and so that's the Japanese, the Japanese NES. Version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the Japanese version. So the video game mar- market was pretty strong in Japan. Uh, the console they, market. While we were having get a crash all of here, these uh, other consoles you've been mentioning, did any of those make it over to Japan? Or were they only North America? I don't really deal with foreign releases and the import market. I'm just so busy uh, with all the North American stuff and with the, that, that I don't I don't pay that much attention. Okay. That would be a question for Leonard Herman, as far as you know. I I know there were certain certain consoles that had versions uh, overseas and in Japan and Europe and everything, but that's not my field of expertise. Interesting. I was just curious because I'm like, I wonder if any of those early consoles like maybe the North American consoles planted some seeds and that then that's how the Famicom came to be. And then that ended up going back over to America and then taking North America over. And it would just be interesting to, cause when I grew up, it was from, from like NES all the way until maybe the tail end of the PS2, PS3. It was like Japanese, were considered better game developers by most kids mm-hmm. and most kids that I talked to and kids that were into games. And then it kind of switched, it kind of switched. But for a long time, those, they were, they were, I viewed them as like the, the culture that birthed the video game, which I know is not true, but growing up, that's what it seemed like. Cause that, yeah, that was well, like Mecca. It was a robust uh, area for gaming for sure. And it was consumers too, you know, just everybody. You know, it's just considered. You know, the Japanese definitely love their electronics for sure. Yeah, have you ever have you ever made it out to Japan? I have not. I have a nephew that lives in Okinawa, and um, so I'd like to go there and then fly over to Tokyo from there or whatever. But I'd like to go someday. I've heard it's a, a great trip, and I I watched the Metal Jesus. Uh, you know, his trip to Japan. Uh, you know, I watched some of that, and that looked really fun. It's, but, uh, no, it's I, a great. I don't yeah, like. I recommend it. Go ahead. Yeah, I would Im- I would imagine so. I don't like being a plane in the plane longer than three hours. I just get too restless. But I heard if you you know just take Benadryl or something <laughs> and just relax, <laughs> you can I, handle it. But I, I just don't like being in a plane longer than I three hours. Either. I get restless. It's, rest- it's I, torture. I, like, I, gotta, I did a trip to Italy yeah. recently, and mm-hmm. it was through the way back. Was like I would 
like waitress, just give me more alcohol, like whatever I can do to just make this more bearable. Cause yeah, you get, I get, uh, you sounds like you, I get like restless feet, like my legs. And I oh, I do. Oh, As a matter of fact, the I'm the same way here. I mean, if I've been in my office for a couple hours writing, or if I've been in my game room for a couple hours gaming, I mean, I'll want to get out and walk my dog or ride my bike around the block or take a walk or whatever. Cause I just, I don't like to sit still that long after a couple of two or three hours. I'm, I, I'm ready to get up and move. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, so it sounds like you got 40 consoles, you've been all in from the beginning, you've been documenting game, uh, documenting games professionally. Well, I, have about, I probably have about 60 consoles, but I've got about 40 that you can immediately play. Immediately set up and play. How <laughs> so many tough. TVs is but, that spread across? Well, there's, it's probably, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, and they're just kind of spread out like an arcade. And then I have a Galaga stand-up machine and... Um, you know, it's just a, a big game room uh, for gaming and movies and all that stuff. Because for years, I wrote for over 10 years, I wrote for the local paper and I would do movie roundups and stuff. And so I would, uh, that was the place to, you know, it was my research centric. So I'd watch movies in there to review, you know, when I was doing movie roundups for older movies. And, you know, so it's, I've always been into writing about pop culture. And, um, as a matter of fact, I've written about rock and roll. You said you have a lot of music fans. I've written a lot about rock and roll over the years. I've, I've got the book Encyclopedia of Kiss, which you can find on Amazon. And I've written about, uh, I write for a newspaper called Antique Week. I'm a national columnist for them. I have a pop culture column uh, called the Pop Culture Collective, where I write about music, movies, video games, and everything else related to pop culture. So this is just what I do. You've been all, yeah, it sounds like you've been all in, which is why I wanted to bring up. Did you ever uh, get a PC or get into early PC gaming along the way? Well, not really, not too much. Um, we started off with a Mac in the nineties. Our first computer was a Mac, and I remember playing a lot of Dark Forces, the Star Wars yes. game. Yes, ah, it's a like fantastic yes. first-person shooter. Yes. Yeah, I love. And I'm that not game. even a huge. Yeah, I'm not even a huge first-person shooter fan. I like Halo and I like Doom and a few others, and I really like Dark Forces a lot. And then I actually learned how to type for real playing Mario Teaches Typing. Strangely enough. I didn't in the know 90s. there was a Mario typing game. Mario. Yeah, it was for the it was for I think it was for the PC and the Mac, but I had the Mac version. And um, uh, in the nineties, when I started writing seriously, you know, I was still doing the old hunt and peck method. Well, I got Mario teaches typing, and it, it's a platformer sort of. You know, he Mario runs along, you know, from left to right, and instead of just pushing a couple of buttons, you type to uh, get Mario to move and it tell you know, you have screen prompts to tell you what to type and it tells you where to put your fingers and everything. And that taught me how to type for real. And, um, but my, com- my computer gaming is pretty minimal. Cause I like, I prefer far prefer the simplicity of consoles, just hooking yeah. them up and playing them and stuff. Okay. So, so deep into the console world, but some of that PC stuff might've slipped by you. Um, and you've been deep into the pop culture world for a long time. And I know, I know when we first chatted, you said around an hour, an hour and a half, which means, uh, we're going to be running out of time. So I wanted to run some more general pop culture video game questions yeah. by you. Uh, which video game has made you cry the most? I don't think I've ever cried during a video game. What? <laughs> no one's gotten you? Nobody's gotten you to no. cry. I'm a soulless bastard. You're soulless man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't play a whole lot of the modern, you know, big story-driven games yeah. where you have this big emotional uh, ending and stuff. I don't, I don't play a lot of those. 
Soundtrack. So, don't do uh, much crime. Best soundtrack for you. Um, hmm. I don't know. Uh, I'd have to think on that one. I like Symphony of the Night a lot. Symphony of the Night, PS1? Yeah. That is uh, my all-time favorite game. So we are uh, excellent. That is it's, uh, it's, it's like up there, number one or number two. I play it every year. Um, there's actually a really robust, and I know you're not into the piece. There's a really robust like ROM hacking community with Symphony of the mm-hmm. Night, and so you can play it on a PS1 emulator. And there's these ROM hacks where people add animations, they add bosses. It's all fan based, mm-hmm. but. Um, it's uh yeah that game and that the soundtrack of that game is uh not just the soundtrack but I also like the sound design. Uh, the, yeah, it just goes with, it fits the game well. Yeah, it fits the game perfect. That's a great one. So yeah, yeah. PS1 for me is my is like my equivalent of the ColecoVision. That was uh Oh nice. It's ColecoVision by Coleco, the way. Coleco, sorry, I keep saying. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's okay. Coleco. Yeah, the PS1 is great. Yeah, I remember my what console. what tipped me over to the PS1 was when those Namco Museum collections came out. Um, Namco Museum one through five. Oh yes, and I remember mid nineties. Yeah, they were or early nineties or whatever. Um, they were just perfect or mid. It had to be mid nineties, obviously. Um, perfect arcade emulation um, of these, you know, Namco museums on five different discs, and they were fifty dollars each at Toys R Us, but uh, which is a lot now. But at the time, they were you know a decent price because you got these perfect arcade ports, which really wasn't by and large wasn't possible before that. So when those these older arcade ports when they were when they were uh, being ported to these earlier consoles before the NES did they did they not how much of a downgrade or how much of a difference were they from the arcade versions cuz it sounds like Well go ahead on the Atari 2600 they were a huge downgrade but a lot of them actually had similar playability just the graphics were a big downgrade and they would be okay. missing some screens like for example, Donkey Kong had four screens in the arcade, you know, four distinctive levels. And the twenty six hundred they had two and the Atari and the ColecoVision they just they had three, you know, for Donkey Kong. So a lot of times the ColecoVision had some excellent arcade ports, but there would be differences like excessive flickering or missing a screen or, you know, a little blockier and maybe some monocolored enemies or stuff. But um but yeah, there was always downgrades and some more than others. ClickOvision did a good job of, of the ports, but there were definitely, you know, pretty noticeable differences. But when then, you know, when they um, with the PlayStation collections, you know, they just had. It was really amazing to me to just have absolutely arcade perfect arcade games at home. And then when I got my PlayStation One, you know, for those arcade ports, I also picked up some other cool games like Einhander and um, Crash like, Bandicoot. Oh, Einhander is like my third favorite game. Phenomenal! Like, that game is like, and no one knows like that game. It's a cult classic. There's a robust community online that I've found, but uh, even people excellent that, game. Even people that grew up playing PS One, I bring that up, and people don't know mm-hmm. it. Right. Yeah, that game is like the, one of my favorite. It's because SquareSoft at the time was this JRPG behemoth, and I I knew them as such, and I was a big fan. And then they they put yeah. out the shooter game, and I'm like, what? And I just right. I just bought it simply because it said SquareSoft on it, and I like sci-fi, and I thought the ship design looked cool, and I'm like, it's gonna yeah. be good. And I and it ended up um, it has that mechanic where you uh, you take the 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 weapons from the enemies. And then you swap out on the fly based on what enemies you kill and different, and that's that was like a mechanic I had never seen because I've played like a lot of Raiden, like the top-down bullet hell mm-hmm. games, and, and uh, what's the yeah. 
Gallag not Gallagher. You know, people listening to call me a poser. That's, that's that famous side scrolling one on Genesis that everyone talks about. It's a sh- Gary's or whatever. G G A R E S. Yeah. I, but uh, yeah, Einhunder was one that, um, and the bosses were amazing. And yeah, that's a, yeah. that's a great, great game. Great pick. Right. Yeah, PS. Well, how old were you? So you would have been like twenty five, twenty six when the PS one came out. See, that was ninety. Five, wasn't it? Something like that. What was the first PS One game you saw? Um, well, the, what drew me to the, what got my attention was those Namco Museum collections. I mean, that yeah. really stood out to me. But then, uh, um, but I did like Crash Bandicoot. Love Crash Bandicoot a lot. And um, Gex, I think it was called. I like that Gex. a lot. Yes. Yeah. Gex was uh, like the pop culture lizard, which I could see why you yeah, like. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> he just has all these pop culture references as you play. Yeah. And then the yeah. Marvel fighting games I liked. Did you um, – I was going to bring up – so I don't know a ton about this. I've seen a few articles about – like I, guess, I think it's an Atari game. It's a infamous E.T. Atari game that they buried like thousands in the desert and someone tracked mm-hmm. it down and found it. E.T., the extraterrestrial for the 2600. Yeah, yeah. G- give, a, give me a – Give me a quick rundown of that because I know I'm, I'm semi aware of the that game well, is infamous for some reason. You know, Howard Scott Warshaw just had you know five or six weeks to to program it, and he made this elaborate adventure game, and um, it it was unintuitive the gameplay. It was an adventure game, and a lot of people started playing it without reading the instructions. They were falling in pits, and they'd get frustrated, and so the game didn't sell it. It, it sold a lot of copies, but it, but they produced way more than it sold, and so they. Uh, Atari had to destroy a lot of them because you know they were just they just overproduced them and it, it really hurt Atari. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess someone f- found well like a a pile of them in some desert or some like dump. Yeah, they did a Alabagoria, New Mexico. They uh, Atari um, buried that game along with a bunch of others. They just, just you know they buried them in this landfill just to get rid of them. <laughs> um, you know, companies will do that if they have an extra product. They'll, yeah, you know, destroy them instead of flooding the market in some respects. And um, so, yeah, there's a great documentary you can watch on that. I think it's called Atari Game Over or something like that. Atari Game Over. I mean, it might have been. I think that's it. That's one of the Atari documentaries. I don't remember exactly what the uh, landfill uh, documentary is called, but it's one of those. Anyway, we're, we've about hit the hour mark, which is what we had discussed. Yeah, is there, I was going to say, is there anything else left? Um, I, I want, the last thing I wanted to ask is, like, of the modern games, mm-hmm. which, which ones have given you the best memories and the best experiences? Well, for me, modern is PS2 to the, to the, uh, Current. To the present. Okay. And so I really love the God of War 1 and 2. I, didn't, I never played God of War 3 because I think that was on the PlayStation 3. Yes, um, yeah, I love the two God of War games. I love the two Maximo games on PlayStation 2. Oh, yeah. Like, Maximo. Those are great. Third-person 3D hack and slash. I love those kind of games. So big fans of those. I love OutRun 2 on the Xbox, OG Xbox. It's a great arcade racer. And um, let's see. Ninja Gaiden on the Wii U is really awesome. And or Gaiden, however you pronounce that. And I love, I, I keep playing, you know, every Mario game that comes out, I'll play it all the way through, including the Switch. And uh, let's see. 
Um, I liked Spider Man for the PS4. That was a that was a really good game. Yeah, I just actually beat that. That's a really good game. Really good. Game. Yeah, I was surprised. Yeah, absolutely. I was. Uh, I don't want to get spoiler alert, but I was not expecting a certain character's death, and it got me oh. a little, got me a little emotional. I mean, I right. what I liked about that game was it was familiar oh. Spider Man. Like everything was really standard, but just cool little twists and like little Easter mm-hmm. eggs throughout the whole game. It didn't. I liked it because it didn't seem like they tried to like reinvent Spider-Man, but they also didn't just, it wasn't just like the same thing retread. Modern with a classic, with a classic. Yes. uh, Yes. Yeah. Very cool. If you got a PS4, I would definitely recommend for your son's PS4 that the newest God of War on PS4 is an absolute masterpiece. Okay. Yeah. I would love to check that out. Definitely, definitely check that out. Before we take off, where can, uh, where can people find your stuff, your YouTube channel, your books? I'll put all the links in the description, but if they're listening, where can they find you? Okay, great. So I've been lit recently promoting my YouTube channel because that's my newest endeavor. And um, if you could go to YouTube and just put in my name, Brett Weiss, B-R-E-T-T-W-E-I-S-S. It'll be the one at the top. If you could subscribe to the channel, that would be awesome. You can find links to all my stuff, my books. My YouTube, my Facebook, my Twitter, all that at brettweisswords.com, B-R-E-T-T-W-E-I-S-S, words.com. And uh, check out the SNES Omnibus on Amazon. Yeah, that's awesome. And it uh, looks like your channel is called Tales from a Retro Gamer, which I love. Yeah. I love that title. Yeah, the I like channel's the f- actually called Brett Weiss, but Tales from a Retro Gamer is my heading, and those are the epis- a lot of the episodes I do are Tales from a Retro Gamer. So, yeah, if you look either, look up my name or Tales from a Retro Gamer, and you'll find it. Nice. But and, I talk uh, about, I tell stories just about, you know, growing up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s and playing all these games and a lot of history, a lot of anecdotes, a lot of fun stories. Sweet, man. It's been a, it's, it's been an absolute blast. Hope you had a good time. I will put all the applicable links and stuff in the podcast description. It'll be up uh, probably this Tuesday or the next Tuesday. I'll let you know. Anything yeah, else I've you really want to say it. before you bounce? What's that? Anything else you want to say to uh, these these young millennial listeners these, that aren't OGs from a, well, from, from a man who's what, been there with, from the beginning? Right. Okay, two things. Just with gaming, have fun. Just try to avoid all the drama and all the trolls. Just have fun with gaming. Play the games you like. Collect the games you like. Just have fun with it. And number two, have a little variety in your life. You know, in addition to video games, go outside. Have a good time. <laughs> uh, you know, have, you know. You know, explore you know fantasy worlds, but explore the real world as well. <laughs> that's uh, that's good advice because there have been definitely periods in my life where the real world was a much lower priority than the fantasy worlds of other people, and that can right. get a little that can get a little that can lead you some dark into some dark times. So I think that's yeah, great just advice. mix it up and you'll be all right. All right, man, I appreciate it. I'm gonna hit stop. Adios. And that is a riggedy riggedy rep. Uh, next week on the podcast, just like last week, I don't know who's going to be on next week. Uh, but don't you stress my, my, uh, oh man, I'm having a brain fart. What's the word for the people, part of my congregation, my followers, my, uh, man, I'm blowing it on the profit terminology today. I'm just, just the, the juices aren't flowing. Look, I can't be the medium and channel for the gaming gods 24 hours seven days a week. You know what? I'm also a man. I am a man. I'm not perfect. And sometimes I don't remember, but my constituents, my followers, my members, my congregation, whatever, I will not fail thee. 
We will definitely have some dope for next week. I have a few people tentatively scheduled. I have some owners of some jujitsu gyms, multiple jujitsu gyms. I have a concept artist in Hollywood. I don't want to drop names yet because I haven't confirmed the date and times. Um, I got a few game developers on the hook. So I got good shit coming. It's just nobody has confirmed to record this week, but I have a bunch of people who have said yes to do it sometime during the week. So um, I'm probably going to end up recording a handful of episodes this week, and then I'll just decide which one comes out. So either way, it's going to be good. In the meantime, like, share, comment, subscribe. You know the drill. The gaming gods will open the windows of heaven and pour blessings so much down upon thee that there shall not be room to receive it. Until then, twiddle your thumbs, don't touch yourself, and uh, don't look at naked people online. I say these things in the name of Miyamoto the Father, Kojima, the Son, and I'm Karmic the Holy Ghost. Amen. See you next week.